Alright, you can be taking your Bibles and going to the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. Exodus 34. You had to pick one passage to explain the character of the passage you think you would choose. I think that's probably a hard question to answer because in some way the entire Bible is about displaying the character of God. Um, to go back to Romans 1, in what we've been studying, Paul says that the, the entire gospel explains the uh, the righteousness of God, and, and it shows it in all of its glory. But if I had to pick one passage from the Bible to explain what God's character is all about, I would probably pick Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Very short passage. Um, but this is a passage that Jonah quoted when he was explaining to God why he hopped a ship and fled to Tarshish instead of going to Assyria. Um, and he told God, I know who you are. You're this. And that's why I didn't go. This is a passage that's also quoted in some form or another in the Psalms, in many of the other prophets, in some of the historical books when people pray to God and say, God, this is who you are. Um, everything God does and has done in his long relationship with human beings comes back to how Exodus 34 and 7 summarizes his character. So today we're going to think about how who God is has always been constant, and we're going to look what God, who God is, as described here, that's fully manifested in Jesus. Hang on, let me make sure everybody is muted before we begin here. If you would just make sure to keep your mics off as we go through this party study. Appreciate it. Thank you. Versus. Okay, so let's talk about Exodus heading into chapter 34 here and think about what's going on. Um, if you if you consider the whole first part of the book from like chapter 4 through 18, what we see is basically God wooing a sweetheart. Now, so those of you who are married, you know, how did you get your wife? Well, chances are um, she did not agree to marry you on the spot when you first saw her. Um, she probably didn't just drop and swoon at your feet. You probably had to court her for a while. You had to woo her. Um, you had to... Uh, you know, date her, you had to speak nice things to her, take her to special places, buy her special things, um, and develop the relationship in just all kinds of ways. And, and what's neat about Exodus 4 through 18 is that that's exactly what you see God doing with the Israelites. So when he finds them in the beginning of the book, they belong to somebody else, and God beats up on that somebody else. He devastates the land of Egypt, he defeats Pharaoh, the plagues just fall one after another on the Egyptians until finally 
they are freed, the Israelites are freed, and so he brings them out into the wilderness and he develops the relationship with them. And and on on the way to Sinai, he gives them gifts, just like a man would as he's courting a woman. Um, even before they left Egypt, if you look at chapter 12, verse 35, it said that God allowed the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians. Um, so gold jewelry, silver jewelry, you know, the kinds of things that a man would buy for a woman, God gave those things to the Israelites. In chapter 15, as they get out into the desert, he gives them sweet water out of a bitter oasis. Um, in chapter 16, he gives them quail to eat. Later on in that chapter, he gives them manna to eat. Bread every morning that tasted like honey wafers. Chapter 17, he gives them water that comes out of a rock. And so for, for all of these chapters, till you get to chapter 18, he is in courtship mode. But then when they get to the mountain, then we see the marriage ceremony taking place. And so from 19 through 31, he is marrying his bride. Um, so what does he tell them to do when they get to the mountain? Chapter 19, verse 10 and 11, he says, he tells Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Um, so this is a marriage ceremony. So just like a woman would clean herself, make herself immaculate and beautiful for her wedding day presentation to her groom, that's how the Israelites uh, acted as they come to God at the mountain. And, and then God calls up Moses, and he goes up to the top, and for 40 days and 40 nights, um, God is revealing to Moses what the relationship is going to look like. Um, the expectations that he has for his bride. Um, but God also talked about how he himself would act toward them, how he would lead them into the land of Canaan and drive out all those enemies and make a home for them. Um, but even before they got to Canaan, God said most of those chapters in Exodus are actually about the tabernacle tent, of how God says, I'm going to live in the middle of the camp with my bride. We're going to make a home together here out in the wilderness before we even get to our final home in Canaan together. So this is really a beautiful and special passage all the way up to this part of the book. And it looks like everything is going really well. I mean, the enemies have been defeated. The Egyptians are long gone. Pharaoh's army has been drowned in the Red Sea. It's just God and his bride out in the wilderness getting married at Mount Sinai. But then something horrible happens in chapter 32, because in the middle of this wedding ceremony, God's bride is immediately unfaithful to him. In Exodus 32, uh, the Israelites, they keep looking up at the mountain and thinking, what, what's happened to Moses? You know, he's, We thought he was going to be back by now. I don't know what's happened to him. He went up in that that scary-looking, booming cloud of a mountain, and he disappeared, and it looks like he's never coming back. So Aaron, they look at his brother and say, you make us an idol. And so Aaron does, and to use the language of Romans, 
the people of Israel were exchanging the glory of God for an image that resembled an animal. And Aaron takes the gold jewelry that God himself had given to the people before they left Egypt. He takes that gift and he forms it into a false god. And God's bride then chooses this other lover. And the Israelites start to dance around this image and they start to say in Exodus 32, verse 4, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, so what is what is a new husband supposed to do in, in the face of such uh, unspeakable wickedness? What would you do? If this was your spouse, if this was your wedding day, if this is what happened to your experience. Well, that's an uncomfortable thought to think about, but I think we're supposed to feel that discomfort heading into this passage and reading this. What did God do? Well, instead of killing his bride, instead of divorcing her, instead of doing something really drastic like that, he consents to go forward with the relationship because there's a mediator, Moses, who stood between him and his bride. Um, and so we need to think about the character of God here and why why God would do something so incredibly extraordinary like this. Why would he forgive this after he has done so much for the Israelites up to this moment in time? And then he still goes ahead with his plan to live with them and to lead them into Canaan after 40 years of this first generation dying out. Um, what kind of a God would do something like this? I've, I've often heard it said by other people that you can really actually see the true character of a person when you notice how they respond to pain. You ever heard that said? I think that's true because I see that teaching in the scriptures in places like Job and places like First Peter in the New Testament. Um, and I, I think it's easy to present an appearance of being a certain person when things are soft and comfortable, but when that comfort is stripped away, then the true nature and the true core of that person is actually seen. If that's true of people... I think that's also true of our Creator as well. Um, this is one of those moments in the Bible where we actually see the true nature of God, because this is not just a self-description of God in a comfortable moment. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he has just been through a moment of unimaginable pain and anguish, personally. Sin affects him uh, personally. And so he's giving that description right after that. So this is who he is. Let's read this together. Beginning here, we'll start in actually verse 4, just to get the context a little bit. Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord's, the Lord's, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? So who is this God who did such things? I'm going to mostly stick with the descriptions in the text. Um, So the first thing that he says to Moses about his character is that he is merciful and gracious. And when you're looking at those two words, um, it's easy to sort of lump them into the exact same category and think about them as synonymous with each other and basically the same thing. But they're, they're not exactly the same thing. They have different nuances. Let's start with grace, being gracious. What does that mean? Well, if we transfer that word into the New Testament, um, that word is often used to describe unmerited favor, right? That's what the, the phrase that those of us who've been studying the Bible kind of throw around a lot, unmerited favor. But, but then we have to further ask, okay, what, is, what does that actually mean? Unmerited favor is basically a gift that you give somebody else that they did not earn, that is undeserved. It's just you simply bestowing favor, a gift, on that person. And what's interesting about grace is that uh, depending on who you are and what you have, um, it's, it's impossible to give some kinds of grace because grace implies you actually have something to bestow. Um, for example, if I wanted to give the grace of mowing somebody else's lawn, but both of my arms and then my legs are broken, then I, I'm not physically capable of giving that grace, even though I want to. Um, and, and we can think about our talents and abilities and our opportunities like that. There's some graces that we can't give. But God, who is infinite in grace can provide gifts in abundance of all kinds. And we see that happening at Mount Sinai. Moses cuts two more tablets of stone, like he did at the first time. And at the end of the chapter, he comes down that mountain after the Lord has said these things about himself, and he gives the covenant to the Israelites, these people who had just worshipped a golden calf and said that that thing led us out of Egypt. So he gives gifts, but he is also merciful. Think about what mercy means. Mercy is the idea of showing compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom it is within your power to punish or harm. Mercy is the idea that I could nail you to the wall because of what you said or what you did against me, but I'm not going to because I am more concerned about your well-being than I am about what's fair and what's just, and I'm more concerned about you than I am about my ego. Mercy doesn't mean gifting someone something that's unmerited. Mercy actually means withholding something that actually is merited. What was merited was their absolute destruction 
but he withholds what they deserved, um, and that was mercy, and instead graciously gifted them things that they did not deserve. So God is both of those ideas together. Um, and we need to think about our characters. When, when other people are describing who we are, would they use these words to describe us? Do we make habits out of the things that we possess, whatever they are, talents, abilities, opportunities, what have you, resources? Do we make a habit of gifting other people? Um, and do we make a habit of withholding uh, what is merited uh, toward other people when they are in the wrong and we are in the right? How do we handle that? This is who God is. God also describes himself as slow to anger. Uh, whenever we hear that phrase, um, especially if we're familiar with the book of James, I think we immediately think of James chapter 1, where we're told that in hearing the words of God, we have to be slow to anger and really understand and digest what God is saying to us. Well, James wrote that because that inherently is within the character of God himself. God is not a hothead. God does not take offense at the drop of a hat. Um, and if that were his nature, then the Israelites would never have made it as far as they did to Mount Sinai, and they never would have gone on to the land of Canaan afterwards, God taking their children in, and they never would have lasted through the time of the judges, um, and then in the time of the kings, and then finally, you know, the, in sending Jesus himself. After all is said and done, um, here we are today, because God is not an angry God, as he sometimes talked about uh, amongst people who don't know him very well. He's tremendously patient. Um, again, how does that compare to our personalities? Something else he says about himself, he actually says it a couple of times, is he uses this phrase, steadfast love, to describe who he is and what he does. You know, if we wanted to, we could live constantly frustrated lives, um, we can live frustrated with the people that we live with in our households. We can be frustrated with the people in our church. We could be frustrated with the wider world outside, and especially in this time when there's a lot of people scrambling around trying to act in the right way towards this virus. There's a lot of people not um, stepping up to bat and hitting the ball, and we can be frustrated about that. But instead of being frustrated, God, uh, who has even more reason to be frustrated than any of us, he describes himself this way. And the idea of steadfast love, I think, is the idea of loyalty. And, and what loyalty is talking about is, is basically the kind of relationship that you don't walk away from. Loyalty does not depend on the strength or the weakness of the other party that you're trying to join yourself to. It depends upon you being concerned for their well-being uh, rather than uh, your personal benefit. Regardless of what it does for you, um, that you're going to be with that person and you're going to help them. God is always loyal to his people. 
Um, verse 7 does say that he visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation. But notice the beginning of that verse. The beginning of the verse says he keeps steadfast love for thousands. ESV says you might have a note in your Bible, though, or a different translation that says he keeps steadfast love to the thousandth generation. So compare third and fourth generation to thousandth, and you get an idea that God is not equal parts wrath and love or mercy. He is he is defined by his desire to join with people who, in most cases, in all cases, humans do not deserve his love. But he's going to stick with us. That's who he is. Again, how do we measure up to that? But the last thing that he mentions in this list that I do not want to minimize or pass over, because this is in his core description of who he is, he says specifically that he by no means clears the guilty. So on the one hand, I don't want to minimize that, but on the other hand, we want to make sure that we put that last phrase in context of everything else that we've just talked about. If he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love, who are the guilty that, he, that he's talking about here? I think he's talking about the people who have stubbornly refused and resisted every attempt that God has made to be all those other things to them. Until finally, they have to be judged. Um, and eventually, like I mentioned earlier, that was this first generation of Israelites. You know, he put up with them here. Um, he made the covenant with them. He took them out into the wilderness. But eventually, he had to say, I'm not taking you into the land. I am going to take your kids in. But you all, for 40 years, are going to wander until you all drop dead. This is a, this is a huge warning to us. Because Hebrews 12.25 in the New Testament says that see that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven so this is our god this is his fundamental core nature these are the attributes that uh, he describes himself by. These are not words that man has ascribed to him. These are his own words. Now, what's interesting about this list and what's interesting about this passage is that when you go to the New Testament and you think about who Jesus of Nazareth is, pretty much all of these things are wrapped up in the nature of the Son of God who came here and showed steadfast love to us. Go to John chapter 3. We're going to read a, a passage uh, from 16 through 21 that describes Jesus. You will find basically everything that was said in Exodus 34 here. Um, if not said directly, then at least strongly implied. Um, in John chapter 3, of course, this is the discussion between Jesus and a ruler of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, who approached Jesus by night and said, Hey, Rabbi, you know, we really know that you're, you're hot stuff. I mean, you're somebody special. You're doing things that nobody can do unless he was sent by God. 
And so Jesus is trying to push Nicodemus's understanding of him as not just this really neat miracle worker, as not just a prophet, but as actually somebody above the typical Old Testament messenger, somebody who's the son of God himself. And he's explaining to this person by night who's come to him the true nature of his mission. These are some of the most famous words in the New Testament, but but think about them here in their context. Starting in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus brought a covenant vastly different than the covenant that Moses walked down the mountain with that day in Exodus 34 at Mount Sinai. But even though the covenants are different, the God who gave both covenants, has remained consistently the same throughout all the ages. In the words of Malachi chapter 3, in verse 6, the last prophet of the Old Testament said this, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The proof that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, but who by no means will clear clear the guilty ones who steadfastly refuse him. All of that is seen in the character and nature of this person in John 3 who spoke these words. And he's the one that we are going to praise and remember now. Appreciate your attention.